has Rush on the Links. In your life have you seen anything like that? Is it his time? Yes! Another one has landed at the 72nd hole. This time for Rob. Now on the team, your host from Anaheim, California, Trent Rush and Nico Bellini. What a beautiful day to be talking some golf with you here today. My name is Trent Rush. You got Nico Bellini here hanging out with us here today. Boy, we got a lot to get to here on today's show. The Ryder Cup team has been announced. We'll talk about Steve Stricker's captain's picks coming up in a bit. But what's going to be kind of interesting, what we want to do today, we want to take a turn, maybe do things a little differently than maybe what you hear everywhere else. And Nico is about as much of an expert as you could possibly have in the subject. We're to take a deep dive into some of the psychology of the game of golf and also what the difference is between maybe a 10 handicap and a scratch golfer scratch to maybe a plus two or three and maybe if you're if you're a plus two or three and you're thinking you know what i could be a tour player Uh, maybe not because that gap may be even bigger than that uh, being an 18 handicap seriously the gap is that big and it's gonna be fun to talk about uh some of that today and uh just kind of take a dive at what really separates guys that are pretty good from the absolute best of the best and those that you know maybe make a Ryder cup team and we saw that announced uh, today, we already knew that Morikawa, DJ, Bryson Brooks, JT, and Cantley were on it. They had qualified automatically, but um, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, Nico, but I do think it's worth addressing Daniel Berger, Harris English, Tony Finau, Xander Shoffley. Scotty Scheffler was kind of not necessarily on our radar. He gets on the team. Jordan Spieth as well rounds out the captain's picks. No Kevin Na, uh, no Kistner. Uh, we talked about Burns. He's not on the list, obviously no Mickelson. Uh, there are several players that I, I think that maybe people thought. And then the big one is no Patrick Reed. And that seems to be one that kind of jumps off the page. Uh, when you found out earlier this week about uh, Steve Stricker's captain picks, just what, what was your initial reaction when you heard the news? Listen, they're great picks. Um, the only one I was a little concerned about, not for was a pick, that, but not making the team was Kevin Na. Because I think Kevin Na, he brings a sense of energy to that team he would bring a sense of energy to that team much like Ian Poulter on the European side but Kevin Na I've known him my entire life he's one of the better guys out there um, and he's the guy's got so much fire you know he's got a lot of fire and he's playing good golf so I think he, sh- he should have gotten a chance you know or more consideration for a pick but besides that the other guys they're all stout they're all stout players I mean you can't go wrong with all of them Patrick Reed I'm sure is, is feeling it I know Stricker um I had a long conversation with him. He mentioned he couldn't sleep at night, thinking about not bringing Patrick Reed onto the team because he is what you call a Captain America for the U.S. But he hasn't been playing very much, and you got to go with the hot hands. So that's why I kind of thought Kevin Al would be a good person to go with because I think he finished third in the yeah. FedEx rankings. But, again, what are the FedEx rankings these days? I, I A friend of mine said this to me, and it kind of stuck because I, really, I, I liked Steve Stricker's team, and I thought that the only one that I thought – Probably the 12th man was probably Scotty Scheffler mm-hmm. get, getting on the team. I think he was the 12th guy. The other 11, we pretty much were set going in. Uh, but you know, for Patrick Reed, he brought up the point, like, if the match is for your life, your life depends on someone to go put up a great round of golf for you in a Ryder Cup. He goes, how do you not take Patrick Reed? Like, that's that guy. To me, Scheffler was the safe pick. You, you make that move, you kind of know what you're going to get. 
Um, he's not going to be a disruption. You know, it, it's going to be solid. With Patrick Reed, you maybe you would have gotten that guy that was going to go win it for you, but you also could have had the guy that could implode and maybe just creates other issues. And and, and you also, I, I think that was a riskier pick, mostly because of the health situation too. Remember, he wasn't even able to fly to the last tournament. You know, I, I think he's doing better. He didn't play all that great there. He, he had a couple of good rounds, uh, but didn't finish strong. He ends up 19 shots off the lead. I get it. The, the deck is stacked against him. But all that being said, I would have thought Patrick Reed would have been the riskier pick. You know, I don't know if I agree with you on that because Patrick Reed, you know, when it comes to Ryder Cup, he hasn't been out that long. He's been out a few weeks, I believe. Yeah. So not that long. I think the biggest concern he said was the health. Could he actually be ready to play sure. on the Ryder Cup team? And I don't really know what happens if he if he's physically unfit to participate, if they can bring somebody else in. I don't think they can. Um, so I think that's what Stricker was, he, you know, balancing as far as what choice to, to go with. And Scheffler... The guy's a stick. The guy played in the Walker Cup. I watched him play in the Walker Cup matches at LA Country Club. So the guy has been a player for a long time. But Patrick Reed, I think you'd have been safe with him. But the guy, like I said, he will, if you want somebody on the line who's, you know, the crowd's against him, whatever it is, who's going to make a putt to just bury it in somebody's face, that's the guy to do it. And I think he would have rose to the occasion at the Ryder Cup. But again, all good picks. Yeah, I don't think that there's a whole lot of issues on that front. I think you feel pretty good about the Ryder Cup yeah. team and, and what you have. And, and it's it's all going to boil down to how well they're able to to gel. I, I think that ends – I mean, I know that that's being played over. Everyone's talking about that. We know how tight that Team Europe is. Uh, you know, I think that there are some concerns with that with Team USA, certainly. And, and you're right. I do think the Reed uh, – the decision to leave Reed off was, was purely health-related. Yeah. I mean, Stricker's going to say it's not, which is fine. But that also brings up the question, like, Brooks Kepka hurt his wrist, yeah, man, and, and miraculously, oh my goodness, he is healthy now. Oh, he's all he's good to go, not a problem. I, I, we've seen this before with Brooks Kepka. I think that it's not a surprise what happened. He was not in contention um, last week. That happens, and, and miraculously, he's okay. So Yeah, and the frustrating and, thing, too, is that Patrick Reed, you know, he... He was on the team any other year yeah. before they switched to six and six. He would have been on the Ryder Cup team. Yeah. So he's got to be pretty frustrated. Yeah, I can I can see where he's coming from. But you know what's just interesting to me? Like you know, we talk about these names. I mean, we're this is the very best of the best players here. We're talking about all. Everyone's a top twenty player um, in, in the list that we're talking about here. It's interesting the separation between that those players, this group, and maybe the guys that are fighting to make cuts, guys yeah. trying to make the card. Everybody's a stick. And I, I think it's, you know, Tim Mickelson had the famous quote, right? Like, hey, I can go beat Phil Mickelson once. The difference is my brother's going to beat me over the course of four days. Just in your experience, and, and, and Nico, for those that aren't familiar, had a, a long career on the European tour, a lot of success, was, was one of the great amateur players in Orange County history coming out of Servite High School in USC, a very highly decorated player, my partner was. Um, and it's it's interesting, and he's good now. He's qualified for the for the U.S. Mid-Am, which we're rooting for you uh-huh. uh, coming up in a, a couple of weeks here. But um, to, to make the jump from maybe being a guy just fighting to get your card to that like what is the difference because when you look at maybe a a handicap it's probably less than a shot differential but it just seems like that's a huge mountain to climb well could you imagine just one shot a day you know over four days over four weeks over six months over 12 months over a career i mean that's a lot of money and a lot of cuts you're gonna be missing off those those shots you know initially you want to think 
if I had the answer, if I knew the answer, what made good players great, right? I think I'd be out there. So that's something I've, I've toiled with for the last decade of my life or even more because I don't know I don't know exactly what the answer is. There is no right smoking gun that would take a player from being good to great or take a 10 handicap. You know, it's even more difficult when you're a 15 handicap getting to a 10, a 10 getting to a 5, and a 5 getting to a scratch. It's kind of like refining a wheel or like a ball. You can get that cube. You start with a block of cube and you kind of take sandpaper to it. And you slowly shape a ball, right? Now you go from a 15 to a 10. Then you take, you know, higher grit sandpaper, kind of refine that ball. Now you go from a 10 to a 5. Now it gets increment, you know, much more difficult. Each handicap going from a 3 to a 2 to a 1 to a scratch. Then going to the pluses. And then you have the pros. There's a bunch of pros out there playing mini tour stuff, playing corn fairy stuff, playing European, playing Asian tour, playing Japanese tour, Latin American tour, Australasian tour, South African tour. There's tours all over the world. Golf is one of the biggest global sports out there. And there's a lot of guys competing. Everybody's all American from 10 years ahead of you to five, six, seven years behind you. I always thought about this. If you take somebody who's walking the plank that's three feet off the ground or just walking across two by four, it's probably pretty easy right you're walking it no big deal now raise that piece of you know two by four hundred feet in the air it's the exact same action you're doing all you're doing is walk across you know a five foot gap on a two by four but now it's a hundred feet in the air it should be the same act but all of a sudden you have all this anxiety created within because you're you're fearing death and in golf of course you're not fearing death but a lot of similar traits can happen when you start going out and playing the hitting giggles with your buddies on saturdays and sundays that's great but all of a sudden, when the money's on the line and cuts are on the line and livelihoods on the line, all of a sudden these things become much more difficult. And there's no secret to what makes these good players great. What takes them to the next level? And even on tour, because you got guys on tour who are very content. I know a few that are pretty content being on tour, but they just can't figure out what it is to be a Ryder Cupper or be contending for majors all the time. They're making good money, but they just can't take it to that next level. And physically. They have those attributes, you know, and there's so many different things versus, you know, your personal life and your social life. The talent's there. It's just how do you make all those butterflies fly in formation? I think any, anybody that's ever picked up a club knows how psychological the game is, yeah. and, and, and that's a huge part of it, right? And, you know, I promised our listeners that I wasn't going to talk about my own game, but I think I, I will here just for an example. I have a real demon on the golf course. That is the number 80. I cannot seem to get to 79. That that's a block for me. There is a lid on that. Um, just playing the other day, mm-hmm. I, I was I was I had a five foot birdie putt on the 18th hole. If I make it at 79, I had no chance to make that putt. I, I hit it really poorly. I I had, I had no shot there. It almost kind of reminded me of Bryson a couple of weeks ago when he was in that playoff with Cantley and and he had a couple like he had the putt. It wasn't like on 18. On the Saturday, he missed the putt for 59, but the putt he missed on 17, he didn't even hit the hole. Yeah. I mean, he was way off yeah. on that. It just felt like a jittery putt. And we're talking about one of the best players in the game. And, and the guy that the guy that I think I think we all could agree, nobody has a greater skill set in terms of just pure tools than that guy. There are better players. I don't think Bryson DeChambeau is the best player on tour. Yeah. But I think he's got a skill set that I mean, maybe Rom. I mean, like that might be it for just pure ability. Um, 
but the difference is it, it, it seems like it's in the head, and it's it's amazing how that could even happen at the most high level you could possibly have. We're talking about, you know, I'm talking about breaking 80. He's talking about breaking 60. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, it's, a, it's an incredible jump. I'm not trying to compare myself to that, but what I am saying is, you can still have in your some head, of those mental thoughts, thoughts yeah. everywhere you go. Uh, you know, it, I don't. Bry, uh, Bryson would not have made my five foot putt the other day. There's no way he would have made it if, if with you know the same mental block that I had. No, and and it is something when you go out and play, and when Bryson goes out and play, any professional out there is on tour playing. You know, the first six holes, you're kind of cruising, you're getting settled. All of a sudden, the putts start falling. You're feeling good. You're feeling the rhythm. Then all of a sudden, for these guys, much like you, your your number is eighty. For these guys, maybe it's sixty. It's like, oh man, I'm I'm nine under par. All of a sudden, it comes into their head. At no point did it enter in their brain that number, but now it's a realistic goal. So now it, it does change, and I don't care what people say to you, you cannot block that out. I mean, Cantley might be the only guy because he's he gets know, to a different place. He's lethal, man. yeah, just like Tiger. But you get to a certain area where you start being concerned about the shots you hit, where before you had no attachment to the outcome. Now you have a lot of attachment to the outcome. So for somebody like you just trying to break 80, I would say go play the red tees. Just get that number out of the way. Go shoot 75, 74 from like a, on an easy golf course. You know, that's what I would do because then you're comfortable. I used to do that yeah. in high school. I'd go and play golf courses in my home club from the red tees just so I could get comfortable shooting under par. You know, in high school, shooting under par was kind of, you know, it, it was hard. It was tricky to do. Yeah. It. And uh, you just want to get in that comfort zone because you had those guys that could shoot 65, 64 at 16. I mean, now it's more regular, but back then it was actually it was trickier. <laughs> but that's no different than yeah. Bryson. I guarantee you the feeling he had on 18 for that putt to break 80 was not too different than what Bryson had to break 60. Yeah. Cantley's putt might have been for fifteen million dollars, but for me, it, you still doesn't. It, you don't want to. You don't want to make it any more or less. Like yeah. like when you want to make it, you want to make it. it. Doesn't matter how much is riding on it. It's you want to make it. I mean, that's that's the that's the thought process. Well, and you start thinking about. You know, when you're playing out there, and especially on tour, when those guys are going, not much thought is going into it. You're swinging it. But when you raise that pressure up, all of a sudden you start thinking of weird things. You start thinking of how many steps you take into the ball. You start thinking how many waggles. Like, these just random thoughts hmm. creep into your head where at no point did they ever creep in your head. But now the pressure's up. Some more people are watching. You realize you're on you know, track to break the record of the PGA Tour for whatever, tie the 59. Yeah. And all these random thoughts come into your head, and I don't care. I mean, that putt Bryson on 18, he says he, you know, he misread it, but, I mean, it wasn't really even close. Did he overread it? Would he have hit, if that putt was on the third hole of the day, would he have hit that, that bad of a putt? Would he have misread it by that much? Yeah. I mean, the guy's a, a walking scientific method, for God's sakes, when it comes to putting. Right. So, <laughs> and he has the books to prove it. I believe those yards books were... Um, aim point so they they knew the slopes they knew exactly what was going on but maybe just overthought it I mean I do it all the time on left to right putts it's like don't miss it low play enough break but don't play too much break you know you start versus just kind of the whole Chevy Chase na 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 like you just yeah, kind of yeah. hit putts without thinking so but that's a different that's an interesting thought you just brought up there because so you said you have an issue like right uh, would you say right to left putts Le- left to right left, putt. left to right putts are a problem it's it, it's amazing to me the detail like that that could be a problem left to right could be a problem but right to left you're okay yeah I'm okay but left to right for right handers are kind of more of an issue because you get to a point where sometimes you can't you don't feel like you can play enough break you can never play enough break on a left to right putt when you're a right hander and hmm. and not you're struggling with putting but it, it's just 
strange on the eye. Most good putters are left. Most good right-handed putters are left eye dominant, so they see the line clear when they're looking at the putt, and they kind of look down the line with the left eye versus the right eye that have to turn their entire head. But with left to right, it kind of plays games with you, and you have a slider, and you want to play more break, but then you get cautious because in the end, you got to hit the putt. You have to start it on the correct line. If you can hit a three-footer straight up the hill, you know, in the middle of the cup, you can make any putt you want. But now you're reading it, and you just tend to overread it, you know, because you're scared of, of missing a low. Not scared, but you just don't want to miss a low. Yeah. So you play more break, play more break, and then maybe you shove it back on line, you make it, you get lucked out, but it's hard to keep the game simple when all of a sudden, again, just like walking that plank, just walk across it. It's three feet off the ground. <laughs> no problem. Then you raise it 100 feet, and now you're taken into wind. You're taking bounds. You're taking, all right, what do I have in my right pocket? I got to make sure I am perfect to walk across this two by four. You know, my shirt, I don't want any distractions. Are my glasses on? I'll take them off. Can I see? <laughs> you know, stupid things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, it's all, it's all pops into your head. Yeah, it all pops in your head. When you're playing golf, if you and me go playing a casual Saturday, I hardly read putts and I make them. Yeah. You know, I, I look at it up, oh, right edge, boom, three cups out, like zero thought about it. And your first instinct is usually your strongest intuitive, you know, feel for that putt. But now when that pressure's up, now you're like, all right, I'm a little downhill. Okay, I'm going to read from the other side. Okay, well, it's downhill, but I'm playing so much break that it's actually going back up the hill before it hits the apex and it breaks. So I got to make sure I hit it with enough speed, but not too much speed. You know, you start thinking about all this crap where it's just... Yeah. I want to I want to go on a little tangent just for a second, just because you said something that that just sparked this. So you talk about the books that Bryson has on the course when, he, mm-hmm. when he's trying to read the greens. Um, that is something that I, I probably is controversial for some people. I think people don't like the book. You're a, you're a historian of the game. You appreciate you, you appreciate I like the history. The okay, I, w- I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, yeah, those books they're right. Golf's an art, and. Part of the game is your intuition. I mean, I go old school. I would say let's get rid of yardages completely. I mean, when I was a kid and playing yeah, I don't golf, like I don't like that at that's all. Too, <laughs> it's, I, I, it's too that might much. be too old school. <laughs> that might be too old school. But think about these guys. Yeah. If they had no yardages, if they just had to judge with their eye, they knew trees. I mean, you know, one of the great clubs in America, San Francisco Golf Club, has no yardages on property. I mean, last time I played it was just 10 years ago. The caddies know numbers from trees, and this is pre-lasers. So you kind of trust things like that. Oh, that, that Cypress tree is 150 to the middle of the green. Ah, we're 10 behind it, so 160. You know, and I played, when you were playing golf as a kid, you didn't have yardages. You just kind of eyed it and played it. And I'm not saying we'd do that, but there's part of trusting your eyes. That's part of the game. That really is part of the game. Yeah. You got to trust your eyes, much like in baseball. If you're in that batter's box, you got to trust that release of the pitcher. See, you got to trust your eyes of seeing what the release is. That's... that's 99% of, I'm not a baseball guy, but that's, I, I, I'm guessing for hitters, if you can judge what well, that ball is coming out of that, that hand immediately, right? You, you yeah, have the, the fast, huge advantage. The faster you pick it up, the faster you get your hands to where they need to be. Sure. Well, in golf with those books, you're taking away the intuition to read. Mm. I mean, if I could have Ben Crenshaw's eyes on how he reads greens or Brad Faxon's or Tiger's, he sees things that a lot of people don't see. And now you're kind of giving that away. Golf's becoming such a science, which is great to teach. But I think once you get out there in tournament play, like I, I think Augusta is going to ban those books. I think they're not going to allow these, you know, putting books or the, like the aim point books because it's just giving away the slopes. Like, what's the point of having an architect go build you this diabolical green where it's like, okay, well, this map's going to tell me what it does? Yeah, that's a real that's a really good point. You know, and I and I am 
So I don't like I don't like the lasers. I mean, if it's there for me, but I mean, you go and you play a Saturday round, yeah. and it's, all, it's got the number on your cart, and then you go and you play that for so long, you start to become reliant on that. A hundred in, it's all eyeball yeah. for me. But I, see, I, I I like I like knowing where one fifty is. I like I mean I like knowing where a hundred is, and I'll, I'll, I think you, if you step it off, I, I don't think, think there's anything wrong with that. I know you don't, yeah. but I, I I think the laser game and how many players are really so good that they re, like, like two right. yards two yards are really going to make that big a difference for That's me. That's the key for me. It's it, it's ten yards. That's right? the key. Yeah. I, I kind of know within ten yards what it's going to be. And, for yeah. at, at the top level, from 120 yards and in, yes, it matters. Sure, yards matter. One or two yards. I mean, I, I got to a point where I was so dialed in with my wedges. I got to go out there. I was in, I was living in South America at the time, and I would hit my shag bag. I had, I would send a caddy out there every day for months, and I would hit wedges. I had a, I had a clock system, this old Dave Pell's clock system. I had a seven thirty swing, a nine o'clock swing, and a ten thirty swing. Right, if you look at your swing on a clock, so I had kind of you know three quarters, halfway, full swing, mm-hmm. with four wedges. Right, so I had twelve numbers. Um, yeah, twelve numbers, and um, I would have send a caddy out there, and I'd find a median. I would find a middle number. So I'd hit 20 balls at 7.30, 20 balls at 9, 20 balls at 10.30, switch clubs. And we kind of figured out what my number was. So I'd, I'd hit the shag bag multiple times. I'd hit flags. I could, I actually impressed myself. Once you start getting to 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, you know, you're just, you can get within a few yards. For the amateur golfer, there was a great story. I had a friend of mine playing St. Andrews, and he had this caddy with him. And by the seventh or eighth hole, he asked the caddy, he goes, hey, all the numbers you're giving me are all round numbers. It's either 100, 110, 120, 130, 140, da-da-da-da. And he goes, am I just kind of hitting those numbers? Like, is that what I'm just falling at? And the caddy goes back and says, nah, laddie, you're just not good enough to hit those numbers. So that was, um, it was pretty funny how he, you don't need those numbers because you're right, you're not good enough. I could play golf with 100, 125, 150, 175, 200 and be pretty good and not stress about it. Sure. And with lasers, when you're playing golf, I, I need to know a carry number. So if I laser the flag, it's like, great, I got 165 to the flag, but I know it's just tucked over that bunker. How many paces? Is it 10 yards? Is it 5 yards? Is it 15 yards? Is it way back? I don't know that. So with the yardage book, I could actually you know compute that into my number, and that was very important. So when I started playing tournaments with the lasers, it threw me off because it's kind of like, well, I got the flag number, but I need to land it front edge. So now I need to get the pin sheet, you know, I'm used to having a routine with my yardage book, walking off numbers, getting front yardage, flag yardage, carry yardage to, you know, if you have to carry a bunker or something like that. See, I, I think that your buddy's caddy at St. Andrews did him like an all time service. Yeah. Like, I kept I, it simple. Like, the last thing I want to hear is if you have 142 yards. Like it doesn't it doesn't make it oh okay well I like I got a shot that's one thirty five that's like you know I got a one forty shot oh it's one forty five what do I do here yeah I, I, I get rid of that I see because I, I think that when especially at that fine level maybe maybe this is different if, if you are on tour like really but other than that um, I have a hard time understanding the difference on, on that front for most players out there and, and everyone's trying to be good right and everyone everyone wants to hit greens and all that. I'm I'm a fan of making that your goal, and certainly you know you're trying to hit different sides of the fairway. But you know, oh, let's go divide it up into thirds. That that to me even starts getting a little complex when you get into that. But I also think the reason why that's a problem, not that that's a bad thing. It's good to have goals. It's good to have targets. 
I, I am of the mindset that the more clutter you can clear, Correct. the better that is. Mm-hmm. And I am as guilty as anybody for getting all kinds of clutter in the head. I, I think I'm a pretty sane person, generally speaking. On the golf course, I, you can become a maniac. You can get into your own head and become a disaster out there. And you even bring up some of the science, the technology, and some of the things. So, like, you go down to Roger Dunn, and they got that machine for you, and they're telling you when you're going to hit drives, they're telling you exactly what you're doing, your launch angle, your exit velocity, your spin, all this stuff. To me, and I see that, and I actually think it's really cool. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, look at this. What what can I do with this? Uh Now I'm playing for the machine. I'm not necessarily playing for the best shot. I'm playing to have the best numbers out there. Correct. It's so tempting and so dangerous, and that's something that I, I, I'm nervous about in the game of golf, and that's why like, I'm not a Bryson guy. I'm not a Bryson guy, not, I, aside from the, the, the Brooksy stuff. I don't care about that. I don't, I don't love that it's almost like his mindset is he's removing the art from the game. Now, I will give him credit on this. He's doing something bold. He's doing something nobody else is doing, and he's being on the forefront of that. I respect that a ton, going completely against the grain. Respect, certainly. But I'm not, I'm not going that route. I, 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 do, I do think by when you, when you become pure science and totally remove the art, that it can be problematic because the human factor was on perfect display on the 17th hole at Caves Valley on that Saturday when he missed that putt by like four feet. And I think Bryson's the only guy who could do that to utilize all that science behind the golf because it, there's so many moving components, you know, in his head. He's thinking about moisture. He's thinking about air density. He's thinking about the grain of the grass. I mean, all these different components. I mean, grain of the grass, a lot of guys think about, it, to be honest. Um, but unless you do it every single day, you're not going to be able to have a smooth transition to an amateur golfer. An amateur golfer can't think the way he thinks. I mean, one of the best rounds I ever played, I played with half my clubs. So imagine you playing golf with half your clubs, like either your odds or your evens, right, with round numbers. Wait, was that by design? Yeah. I went out there with Johnny Wonder, a good friend of mine. And uh, I played with the, I just started with the 60, and then I took my 56 out. So I went 60, 52, took my 48 out, 9 iron, 7 iron, 5 iron, you know, 3 iron driver or 3 wood driver. And I shot 63 out of golf course out in Palm Desert because the decision making all of a sudden becomes much easier. Yeah. If I have 175, it's like, well, it's either the 6 iron or the 8 iron. An 8 iron ain't getting there. And, and, you know, four irons way too much. So six iron it is. It's not the perfect number, but I gotta finagle something. It makes your decision making so much easier versus like, oh, do I want like a, a floaty seven yeah. or do I want like a a stinger eight? You know, whatever it is. Like you both hit them the same number. To be honest, the irony of that is my seven iron from two years ago is currently sitting at the bottom of a lake in Scottsdale. <laughs> so I, I can I can relate to what you're saying. Every time I play, that's the, that's the yeah. situation. But yeah, I mean, that, that, that's an interesting thing that you bring up there and, and going about it that way and, and taking out, I think, some of it. But I, I'd be curious to know, like, your career. I mean, everything's set up for you in, in just in, in terms of your talent and your ability to make that jump and, and to be that player, uh, to, to, to do what, you know, a Hunter Mahan has, has done in his career and been on the pro tour. But 
to to find like that difference to to make the the gap from being where you were in your career an outstanding player in the European Tour in Latin America and you, you got all the talent in the world and so do a lot of other guys. But what's like what's the difference? Have you? Have, I'm sure you've thought about it. Oh, that's all I think about, and and it's not necessarily. I'll tell you one. I played with Rory. I think I discussed this last week, but I I, I met Rory. And played with him during Q school, his first time he ever turned pro. Yeah. And uh, you know he rolls in with his fleet of 740, you know BMWs. I have a little rickety pole cart, you know squeaking wheels, and we're in England playing the first stage of European Q school. And ever since then, we both got through that week. And uh, he ended up two or three weeks later going on to play the Dunhill out at St Andrews and finished second. So he he was exempt for the year. He made enough money to yeah. get inside the top 100 money list. Blah blah blah. Never saw him again. I always thought you had to be perfect. I always thought you had to be perfect out there, that you had to flush it. Because I, I remember seeing Rory, and I played a lot of golf with Steve Elkington, and Steve Elkington, mm-hmm. when I was playing golf with him, was semi-retired and was drumming me at Champions Club in Houston. And I'm like, man, this guy doesn't even play golf anymore, and he's hitting it better than I am, and I'm trying to get out there. Yeah. So I always thought I had to be perfect, and you know, the wiser I got, the more I realized you do not have to be perfect. There's plenty of guys out there that... I hit it good enough. Bottom line, I hit it good enough. I don't need to be DJ or you know Rory. Those, these guys are on a different level. And then there was doubt. You know, when I missed a cut or if I had a, if I struggled on a certain day, I would immediately go back to like, what else should I be doing? I need to get a job. What am I doing? I'm wasting my time. I'm 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 blowing an opportunity to to be somebody. Or grow my career in another field. What am I doing playing golf? Right? Or I think those guys that are so great, that never comes in their mind. That never enters the thought process. No matter whether they play, you know, good or bad. It's like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I am. This is who I am. And this is what I'm going to become. Whether I play, you know, poorly or not. I mean, look at Cantley. The guy misses a year and a half, two years of golf. At some point, you got to imagine doubt crept in his head. Like, ah, you know, maybe I should get into real estate. Maybe I should get into insurance. Or maybe I should just find a career path and just stick with that because golf is just kind of in the, you know, not in my, my, my periphery right now. But no, he just he just has an attitude. Like, no, this is what I do and this is what I'm going to do. And I think I struggle with that. And I think a lot of guys have that, especially if you go to a, you know, if you, if you have the opportunity to go to a, a, a nice university with good alumni connections, et cetera, where, you right. see other your friends, you know, being successful in other avenues of life, and you're sitting there still grinding it out. That's why I admire guys like Tony Finau so much. Who, you know, they were out there for a while, and he got his tour card. Nice Ryder Cupper, Scott Harrington. Scott Harrington is a guy who, last year or the year before, he's 40 years old. I traveled with him quite a bit in Europe. His wife got diagnosed with cancer, and it was a tough battle, and she's getting through it. And he just kept grinding and grinding and grinding. And I spent a lot of time with him in Europe. Uh, we lived together in Italy for uh, one of the summers when he kind of went out there and ventured and played a little bit of golf. And the guy always had the physical tools. You know, 6'3", hammered it, had the length, had the mental makeup. Who knows what was wrong with it? And he finally got his card. There was just that diligence. So then, you know, that thought creeps in. I'm like, man, if I would have just stuck with it, could yeah. I have done it? Yeah. If I had the mental outlook I have now when I was playing, you know, competitively, like what things have been different, so I don't know, but I think it comes out of those two things where you don't need to be perfect, and it's just a confidence. You can't ever doubt yourself. You cannot doubt yourself. You know, 
Yeah. I mean, because I think that if anybody just were to go to the range and, and watch you and watch and, and there's I mean, and not, I'm not just saying you because I think there's a lot of you. Correct. Correct. There are a lot of guys that are incredible sticks that could have had a, a real chance to do this thing. But for whatever reason, it, it, it didn't happen. And I think that it's it's really fascinating because I would imagine like if I'm watching you and, and Patrick Cantley on the range, there's probably not that big of a difference. That's that's the thing that is to me so fascinating about this game. I mean, I mean, I mean, shoot, you guys were the same high school. Yeah. You had you had better high school accolades than he did. Um, I know his senior year he was pretty dang great. I was, I was Al Bundy, Pokai. <laughs> no, but you know, and but, th- but that's but I, but I think that like to, to most people watching, like the, the the amount of separation there is so slim. And we see this in baseball all the time, and a lot of times it only gets revealed once you come to the major leagues. Because guys can be, you know, the, the best 17 year old, then you're the best double A player, then you become the best triple A player, you're the number one prospect to get to the major leagues. All of a sudden, reality sets in. Man, these guys are good out here. And some thrive in that, and others don't. And that ends up being it. Um, it's, it's really fascinating seeing that. I guess it happens in sports a lot. But I do feel like golf, which is so results-based, it, it's completely objective when you're looking at the game of golf in the sense that your score is your score. I mean, yeah. that, that, that's what you have. But there are so many other little intricacies that, to me, are just fascinating. Well, and one of them, too, is finances. Right? Yeah. So when you first turn pro, it's not cheap. I mean, I budgeted about $100,000 a year in travel and in expenses. Wow. That's a lot of money. And that's just staying at normal hotels, you know, that kind of thing. Nothing fancy, just just living by. So I was able to raise just a little bit of money, you know, not a lot, but enough to get me going. I might get ten grand for the year. So and, and there's stories about guys out there all the time. All I was concerned about was making money early on in my career. Like I gotta make a cut. I gotta make the cut. I gotta make the cut. If I make the cut, I make a check, I make a check, I continue on. I didn't have this mentality of winning. I just wanted to make money hmm. just to survive. And lo and behold, here I am floating around the cut number every week, making it by one, missing it by one, on the number. You know, I was never really contending because I think my, my mindset was just to cash checks and stay afloat because I, I would be so embarrassed to go back to my sponsors and ask for more money. And nobody wants to live like that. No. And, and when I say sponsors, these are private sponsors. These are just Jimmy's and Joe's giving you money. Here's a check for ten grand. Good luck. You know you don't owe me anything. If you make it to the Masters, give me a ticket. You know that happens all the time, and, and it supports the lifeline of mini tour golf. Um, but you, you get tired. You get embarrassed going back hat in hand asking for more money. You know because it, it, it takes a shot at your manhood in a way where it's like, man, I can't support myself. I can't support my family, and it eats at you. It really does, especially when you see that you have other opportunities in life to to build a career that's not golf related. So. That's just one of the another small intricacy. Because there's guys that didn't have any money and made it, of course. Then there's guys that had all the backing for ten years and never made it. Yeah. But that is one of the things that people worry about, you know. And it just comes down to a mental makeup. I know Peter Tomasulo, uh, a good friend of mine, played at Cal Berkeley, played on tour for a couple of years. He raised a little bit of money, you know, ten grand, I think, early on. But his second term was Long Beach Open, and he, I think, he won it. Or finished second or something like that. So he made $40,000 off the bat. So he never, right then and there, he has all his money and never really had to go ask for money. He immediately got his KFT card or his, you know, web.com card at the time. And, you know, was out there for a number of years. So, you know, it just kind of depends how it happens. 
I think we hear so much like in baseball. Um, it's it, minor league players don't make a lot of money, but but many of them they get drafted early on, get a nice check right there to start. I think any time that you try to make sports your occupation in your life, I mean, there are hurdles that come with that. I just have trouble understanding and, and thinking that there could be a sport that is tougher to do it in than golf. I, maybe I'm wrong. I'm not familiar really with the tennis circuit and how it happens. But I just think about how it comes in baseball. Like, at least in baseball, there is some money coming in. It might not be enough to survive. But, at least but you're not worried about it early on in the minor leagues, right? They're paying right. for you. You're getting stipends. Like They're taking care of you. you got somewhere to sleep. Sure, sure, to, to a certain extent. And it depends what level you get to. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and there's most guys that get signing bonus. Like, but if you're a – you know, there's not a 30th round anymore. But if you're a 30th round pick, like maybe you sign for a couple grand and it's going to be – it's tough to make ends meet. Like that, that is a real thing. And, and there are stories of guys that, that don't get enough to even – you know, to, to to afford housing, like it's like their their checks don't cover that. But I I do think that even that, as as you know, tough as that sounds, when you gotta go beg for money to try to get to your next tournament and do all that and and find help like that that to me like like you're talking about okay that first year you budgeted a hundred thousand dollars and you brought in ten that's a ninety thousand yeah, dollar loss that I gotta make in winnings <laughs> yeah you gotta you, you try try to make that back and that's a lot of money to yeah. try to make and that I mean that's hard to do but I mean and you could make that money you yeah. could make a hundred thousand dollars but it's all in expenses it's all gone yeah. So it's like, hey, actually, you know, buddy, I'm actually making more money than you are, but it's going back into my business venture, you call it, right? Sure, sure. I I, I like hearing the stories, too. Like, okay, um, you told me a story one time. Maybe you want to share it on the air. When you played down in, in uh, South Africa. Yeah. And because I just think that the travel stories of life, playing on different tours, trying to find tournaments anywhere you can. Um, how do I like, give me an example maybe of one like really particularly tough like travel circumstance? Just help us <laughs> help us uh, be be in your shoes for a minute. Oh, I, I we could go on that. We could do a whole segment just on that alone. <laughs> but um, everybody, there's that there's this guy Club Pro guy CPG who I, you know is a great follow on Instagram and, okay. and Twitter, and he talks about playing the Mexican mini tours. And I actually did a lot of the legit Mexican mini tours. Um, but I was playing a tournament down one time in Argentina, South America. Um, and during the time, there was huge protests throughout the country um, regarding the export of their soybeans. Or any of the farmers, or ex- whatever the farmers exported overseas, they were taxed, I believe, 50% oh of whatever, their, whatever was exported, right? It went, and it was like a five-year process where it started at 10%, then up to 20 then up to 25 then up to 30 Then I was like, yeah, whatever you sell, we're, t- we're taking 50%. And the farmer said, enough. So every major city in Argentina had these massive protests. And they were mostly peaceful. Um, but all the city squares, all the downtown avenues were blocked off. All the farmers would block the routes going into the cities. So there was no food. There was no milk. There was no butter. There was no, nothing getting to the supermarkets. Because they're you know, leveraging this sure. weight. Like, hey, fine. You're not going to change this, this taxation. or we're gonna, You guys aren't getting food. You know, it's not like here where you have the 405 and the 55, you have major highways. Yeah. They're two-lane roads, you know, that they park their semis across those things and nobody can get across. And um, I was playing a tournament in a town called Tucumán uh, up in Argentina. And I remember I was just there by myself. I had played the Pro-Am the first day. And uh, I was just walking into town uh, to grab dinner and there was a lot of commotion. There was about 5,000 people marching around the square protesting the farmers. And it was like peaceful kids and all that kind of stuff. And 
I walk by and one of the guys goes, hey, come come join us. Come join us, you know, in Spanish. And uh, I was like, sure, I'll, I'll join you guys for a little march around the plaza in Spanish and wave the flag and, you know, be part of something. And we turn the corner. Boom. There's six police there. They pull six of us out. They throw um, zip ties on our wrists. And I'm sitting there like, do I play my Spanish card or do I play my American card? You know, because I, for nobody knows that there are, uh, I speak Spanish. Argentina, Argentina is my home country. That's where my family's from. Um, so it's, it's a, I'm a very naturalized, you know, citizen there. And um, but I was nervous about that because I'm like, well, if I play the American card, they're like, oh, this this, this gringo, we're gonna we're gonna take him for all his money. We're gonna exploit him and ask for cash, or you're done. So anyway, so I spoke Spanish, talked to the guys. They threw us in jail um, that night. That's kind of like a drunk cell type thing. Like the six of us or ten of us or whatever that in there. And I have no idea. I have no one to talk to. I have nobody to call. You know, I have uncles and aunts, but it's not like a, I don't have an iPhone. Like there was, it was just a little different. <laughs> yeah. And I'm talking to the guy. I'm like, well, what do we do? And uh, he's like, oh, they're probably just pulling us over to get us off the street. Like we'll be fine. I should exaggerate the story, which would make it much, you know, sexier. <laughs> but we end up. Spending, I'm already pretty intrigued. We all we end up spending all night in jail. One of the guys was he played the program that day, hilariously of the tournament. But the next day, fortunately, I had an afternoon tea time, and. uh I'm sitting there. It's now 9 a.m. It's 10 a.m. And I'm going off like at 12.30, 1 o'clock. And I don't know what's going on. They finally pull me out, ask for my passport. I'm like, I don't have a passport. I was going to get dinner. And uh, they question me, what are you doing here? Are you part of the protests? Are you part of this group? That's There was another demonstration within the group. Um, for you, like the Montoneros group, like another kind of rebel side um, protesting group. I was like, nope, I'm not part of that group. They finally let me go. I rushed to the golf course. My clubs were already on, on site. And I had like 10 minutes to tee off. I ended up teeing off. And I played pretty well. But I was like, <laughs> you know, people in my group like, hey, where were you? We didn't see you on the range. You look all, you look all flustered. I was like, I was in jail for protesting a national government. So that was always, that was definitely a, a bit of a pickle. I never told my aunt and uncle down there because they would have freaked out. Um, years later, I finally kind of told them and um, what had happened because it wasn't that big a deal in the end. But I did spend jail. That's just one of many. But. Wow. That, that, yeah. So that would be, that's a very interesting way to prepare for a round. Yeah, I might have Interpol looking for me. Who knows? Yeah, so <laughs> I just compare that to me. I, you know, I'm getting ready to go on a golf trip here, and I had a practice round today for my practice round tomorrow, just be for something that, that only matters to me. It matters to <laughs> absolutely nobody else. There's zero stakes. I think we, I'm going to play my buddies for a $5 bill. I think that's, I think that's what's on the line, uh, but take it very seriously. And then uh, there you are before an actual event uh, with, with stakes. And uh, there you are the night before, spinning, spinning, spinning in, the, in the drunk tank, yeah. uh, even though you weren't drunk. I wasn't drunk in, uh, <laughs> in, in Argentina. That's that's incredible. Yeah, absolutely cool. Incredible. The uh, well, I'm glad uh, th- that what what a way to whet the appetite, by the way, because I think there's there's uh, probably more in the tank that I'm looking forward to. Oh, hearing. there's a lot of good stories. Uh, so, some of this stuff. They, they, that's the beauty of it, right? This is the stuff. This is the stuff that we all love. This is this is golf around the world, and uh, nobody. There, I, I don't know another person that has experienced, I think, more in this game than you have going through those kind of situations. And, and sort of back to the question you asked me about, like, you know, why didn't you make it? What happened? You know, that's another element. I think I loved traveling the world in some ways more than golf i love the lifestyle more than i actually love the game sometimes because at that point the game was work i wasn't playing hickory golf i wasn't playing left-handed i wasn't doing clinics i was just it was work so traveling and going to these cool cities i think i enjoyed that a lot versus the golf sometimes
All right, now let's switch gears uh, for just a moment. Our 18-hole uh, round, I guess, is in the books because it's uh, time to enjoy a little extra festivities with our 19th hole. For today's final thought, this is the 19th hole. All right, I think we're uh, ready for maybe a little, maybe some controversy, Nico. I think you have uh, maybe an innovative thoughts uh, for what you'd like to do. Maybe what, what are you bringing to the table here for the 19th hole? So the Olympics, I didn't watch much of the Olympics this year, but I did notice a few events that caught my attention. And one of them was the 4x400, I believe it was, or even 4x100, I'm not sure what it was, but it was uh, like a co-sanctioned event where it was men and women. So I thought it was really cool because the teams had to be very strategic. Uh, do they have two men starting and then two girls running the anchor? To the vice versa, and a lot of teams had different strategies, and I thought it was very cool. So I remember watching one race where I forgot who it was had a major lead because he started the two guys first and had the two girls anchoring it, right? So they had a huge lead, and then vice versa, the guys anchored the other team and caught the girls. But I thought it was a great idea. And with golf, I always thought it'd be pretty neat seeing the Solheim Cup and the Ryder Cup sort of merge and play together and have this sort of co-sanctioned Ryder Cup Solheim Cup team because could you imagine you know you got um, Jordan Spieth out there playing with Lexi Thompson and they're taking on a couple European players an alternate shot you know I think it'd be great the, the strategic ideas behind it on par fives okay so maybe if there's a girl going to tee off on the par five from whatever tees are playing because will, will the guy be able to reach the green in two anyways I thought that'd be I thought it'd be pretty cool if something like that were to happen because it would draw on a lot of viewership. And the women's game, in a lot of ways, is how golf should be played. Meaning they don't spin the ball as much as men do. So without that spin, they can't attack flags that are tucked in corners. they got to use the lay of the land. they got to use the contours. they got to play golf like very intelligently. Where guys can just kind of be meatheads and throw six irons from 220 to a flag tucked behind it and stop it right there. Or the women have a whole different strategy. So if a guy rips a drive down there... And they and the girl has 200 yards, but to a tuck pin, they can't really maybe go for that flag. They have to kind of go from the wide side. Anyways, I thought it'd be pretty unique if they did a little co-sanction event like that on a major stage. My only question for you, uh, because by the way, the women can pound it. So the, I mean, the distance. I mean, it's not. I, I know it's not the same as the men, but I mean, there's some of them hit yeah. pretty hard. Oh yeah. Um, you're not saying get rid of the Ryder Cup and so on. No, 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 no. Okay, you're, you're just saying you're maybe a third, maybe a third event. Yeah, maybe a third event, or you know, I don't know how. To be honest, I don't have an answer for that. Okay, I, put, right. I haven't put that much thought. Because I don't want to. We're not touching the Ryder Cup. <laughs> if you're, it, I'm open to a lot of ideas. We're not touching the Masters. We're not touching the U.S. Open. We're not touching the Ryder Cup. Those hey, are, hey, this would have been the perfect year. COVID year merged both the Solemn Cup and the Ryder Cup into one event. Interesting. Um, I, I I like I like the concept. I like the concept, but I don't. I, as long as we're not taken away from the Ryder Cup, I I, I think the idea is interesting um, because of the strategic element that you bring up. But I, I would like to see them be separate. Uh, done. I you know the women got crushed at, at the Solheim Cup at, the, at that last day. It was disappointing. You know it, it's kind of interesting. I feel like, and this is maybe true for pretty much every sport. Like like Team USA women have dominated in the Olympics like every sport for years and years and years. Like, that's always been the case. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, GB&I was uh, as, as as good as they were, um, and, and, the, and Team Europe was as good as they were on the women's side. 
<laughs> you know, the, the men have had a hard enough time in the Ryder Cup taking on Europe. Uh, we could use some help uh, from the women, but man, it, maybe that just goes to show uh, maybe that maybe that side of the pond is is ahead of us. I don't think so. I, I think we have the talent, but I am like yeah. I said at the top. I'm concerned. It's strange. I mean, golf in the end is an individual sport. You know, I don't care how much you root for your own teammates or whatever it is. I played golf in a team environment. Of course I want to win the team events, but I want to win the individual events more. Sure. And I think deep down at its core, it is an individual sport. And I think the U.S. has a harder time shifting into the sacrificial mentality of like doing what's best for the team versus Europe. I could be wrong, but, um, you know, that's just kind of my take. Golf ultimately comes down to your best interest. So maybe at the U.S. level, and you know, they're it's highly competitive. You know, these guys are they're putting their livelihoods as far as all year. Then they go to this event where they got to shift their mind, like Cantley, completely away from what he's been trying to do, beating everybody's brains out, and now he's also teammates with them. Yeah, you know. Well, I, the only thing I would say to that is to your first point. While you could talk all you want about, hey, the, you know, the Europeans, they get together, they have beers afterwards, the Team USA, those guys are all kind of on their own thing. At the end of the day, you got to get, you got to have the best mm-hmm. scores. You got to play, yeah. You got to you, you got, you got to win, you got to win your match. You got to, correct, beat your guy. Yeah. That, that's what matters at the end of the day. Nico, this was fun. I enjoyed uh, breaking down the mental side of all of this. I, I enjoyed hearing some of your stories. When we, okay, so next week, get ready for the Ryder Cup talking all about that we're going to do a very deep breakdown on whistling straights we're going to have some people from whistling straights break down golf in wisconsin we spent some time on the mental side we've spent some time talking about an individual player on tour now it's time to talk about a golf course we'll do that with whistling straights next week nico enjoy have a good rest of your week i appreciate that thanks for listening my name is trent rush he's nico bellini this has been rush on the links on angels radio am 830